But what we want to encourage is to encourage our clients to start looking at other types of signals uh, and behaviors that might indicate that the campaign is being successful. That's Kevin Liang, Director of Solutions at StackAdapt, our sponsor on this episode of the Digiday podcast. Later in the show, Custom talks with Kevin about programmatic account-based marketing, the best practices and missteps B2B marketers need to know. Another episode of the Digiday Podcast. I am your co-host, Kamika McCoy, Senior Marketing Reporter here at Digiday. And I'm Keely Barber, Media Editor at Digiday. Welcome to another episode. This one falls on Halloween, spooky season. Do you have any fun plans? Well, my Halloween plans actually happened earlier this year. So last weekend, which was the 21st, my friend had a housewarming and made it Halloween themed. So that was my big like outing for the season. Um, I did dress up even though it's not my, like, I don't know, people get really excited over Halloween. I will go with the flow and I will go to a party, but planning a Halloween costume is always very stressful for me, but I did manage to get it underway. So my sister and I went kind of in a, a duo and I went as a witch and she went as a pilgrim. And so throughout the night, she'd point at me and be like, witch, burn the witch. <laughs> and that was like the the like skit for the night, right? So it ended up going very well. Um, it was fun. But the actual like Halloween weekend, you know, Halloween event itself is just going to be me watching, you know, fall themed, scary-ish movies and eating probably a, a decent sized bag of Twix or Baby Ruth or something like that on the couch. And that will be... My ideal Halloween. How about you? I love that for you. As long as, I mean, is there going to be candy corn involved? I hate candy God corn. God bless. We're on the same page. Um, I'm going dressed as Barbie because, of course, I am um, to a friend's Halloween um, get together. I'm also being tasked with preparing a snack. That's the part of Halloween that scares me. I don't know how to make a pumpkin themed anything, but we're going to give it our best go. I'm glad that we have some good, juicy plans. Um, but before we skedaddle to said plans, this week's guest is Joy Robbins, who is the Global Chief Advertising Officer at the New York Times. A pretty big name. Super excited to have them on the guest, have them on the podcast, excuse me. But talk to me about kind of why uh, you wanted to talk to Joy and what the conversation was about. Yeah. So, you know, just over a year ago, Joy joined us on the podcast for our um, Chief Revenue Officer series. And at the time, she was at the Washington Post. So lots of changes happened in that year. Um, But when we were chatting for this episode, you know, talking about Q4 and 2024, I think is like really top of mind for a lot of um, publishers and, you know, marketers alike, uh, really thinking about how budgets are going to be spent this quarter and how they're going to be planned. I think there's been kind of like a real focus on what 2024 will hold, given how funky this year was. So I wanted to have her on to talk about these things. Um, But actually, you know, as we were recording this episode, um, I had gotten a slack about, I think it was an insider article, Annette, like, reporting that the New York Times had re-added programmatic, um, open programmatic to their app, which had, like, had been removed intentionally a couple years ago. Um, and at the time it was, you know, a, a very much like user centric decision. So I asked Joy about this cause I had her recording a podcast right when that Slack came in and it was a very, um, you know, kind of good way to get at like what the recent changes have been in her approach to 
advertising, especially because she just joined the Times um, to oversee this. So uh, we talk about that. Uh, we also talk about, you know, kind of adding more attention metric KPIs and really trying to sell engagement to advertisers and how her team is working to incorporate that as a standard practice. And But it's an ongoing shift because obviously KPIs like viewability, click-through rate, like those have been top of mind for marketers for a very long time. But I think in the coming year, especially as the cookie goes away, there's going to be a shift more towards these very attention-focused metrics. So we talk a little bit about that as well. So did you ask Joy what she's wearing for Halloween? I didn't because it didn't occur to me that this was the <laughs> Halloween episode. But um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'll follow up with her and we'll add a patch in later. I'm kidding. We're not going to do that. But you never know. That's fun enough for me. Super excited to hear from Joy. So with no further ado, let's get to it. Thank you. Joy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Kaylee. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. And so I didn't realize how kind of recently we've last spoken for the podcast, but a lot has changed in that time, including a new job for you, a new company that you're now working at. First of all, congratulations on your new role, but also how has it been, um, you know, working on the New York Times' ad business? Thank you. Um, so it's been five months. Um, for a little while, I was just counting weeks, but now I'm, I'm into the month's mode. Um, and I'm loving it. It has really been an incredible start. And I feel really lucky to be here. That's awesome. Um, and so I think the last time we spoke, it was very much focused on like lessons from the pandemic because 2022, uh, that time of the year, it was around Q3 that we spoke. That was a a tough time for digital publishers. Um, digital advertising revenue obviously had been on this kind of downward momentum. So it was almost like rehashing some of the playbook from 2020. Um, it Based on the Times earnings from Q2, though, uh, I know your digital advertising revenue was surpassed expectations, I believe was the quote from the call. Um, but you know, it was an increase of 6.5% year over year to 73.8 million. I think that is a bit of an outlier from other publishers' um, earnings at the time. But I am curious, like based on the, you know, promising momentum that digital advertising had for the company, is that kind of slump in advertising, um, that revenue stream in general, has that pretty much come to an end? Do you feel like we're on a kind of positive momentum in the rest of this year heading into 2024? Or like, what's the kind of perspective that you have on the kind of industry at large? Sure. Um, that's a great question. And yes, uh, Q2 for us grew six and a half percent. Um, and advertising revenue for the athletic doubled year over year. Um, so we had a lot of promising things to report. Um, Meredith also said, and I think that remains true is that, um, visibility is really difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that that's something that we've been saying, and I've been seeing quarter over quarter um, for the last several. Um, but I think, you know, what has made the entry into the times so energizing um, over these last few months is what I think is untapped versatility and just a really exciting opportunity for growth that is really led by um, the introduction of some of the sub-brands that um, we have built really, really important subscription businesses off of. And so, you know, what that means is that we are taking um, new 
brands and effectively uh, introducing advertising into them. And at the same time, what Meredith also said in Q2, which remains true, is um, we've got real um, uh, resilience in our digital display advertising. Um, you know, our combination of premium ad formats and first party data is really performing. And that's been something that I think has really um, been important to the ability for us to, to continue to deliver. Yeah. And I think what you said about, you know, visibility being challenging within, you know, digital advertising is something I've definitely heard from not only other publishers, but like marketers and buyers as well. And so I think that's kind of put some pressure on changing the way they buy media or how they kind of like spend their marketing budgets holistically. And for publishers, I think that also changes how you approach marketers, right? Like you have to kind of maybe play a slightly different role or maybe hold their hand a little bit differently than, um, you know, years past. And so based on that, I, I'm curious right now when you're talking with advertisers and, you know, brand clients and things of that nature, if there is a different KPI that they're keeping top of mind, if they are changing how they measure ROI of, you know, their campaign, um, budgets right now or what that kind of means for your overall relationship with um, advertisers? Because I, I do think that there that changes the dynamic a little bit, you know, with how um, budgets are typically spent or have been historically. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that is clearer and clearer is the accountability um, of outcomes um, and really making sure that the media dollars that our partners are spending are working for them. Um, and obviously there have been a number of proxies through which we've measured KPIs, whether that be VCR or click-through rate um, or even viewability. And I think one that we're seeing emerge more and more is a question around attention. Um, and that I think is not a new metric. We've all been talking about it in one way or another, um, but I have seen it become a stronger proxy or a desired proxy for quality impressions versus what I think version 1.0, you might say, have been, which has been viewability. Um, and so we've seen some of those conversations progress. And we are, in fact, on our own looking into the metric as well, because we believe anything that is going to help really demonstrate the quality and the importance and the impact of being in well-lit, strong premium environments, um, such as brands like the New York Times um, and, and journalism overall, is, is really important and will benefit the industry and our clients. Right. And so I think like attention metrics, um, you know, it's, it's something that's come up in a few conversations as well with publishers. But I think understanding what those metrics are specifically, is it something, you know, time spent or like mouse hovering? Like, I'm just curious, like what those end up being, because I think, you know, when you're talking about a display campaign versus like an event or something like that, those are going to be entirely different. But curious if you could just like maybe add a few descriptors to what those like KPIs specifically might look like if, or if they're still being kind of like figured out. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that 
what we're doing is really understanding how some of those are evolving. But what we see attention being an indicator of is a quality of of an impression. And that's the value of the audience, the value of the environment, the value of the format, the value of the message. Um, So, uh, you know, I think that, again, I don't think we're transacting on this all yet because I don't think there is total agreement or one specific um, measurement that effectively um, indicates attention that has become the standard, but we are definitely working with our agency and brand partners to really understand better uh, around what they are seeing become more of, uh, of the standard. Got it. And curious, like, do you think it's more on the agencies and marketers to maybe figure out for themselves what kind of attention metrics should be the standard? Or do you think it's something that the publishers have a role in figuring out That's a or, great question. you know, adding yeah. into their business? And, and to be clear, we absolutely want to be a partner in all of this rather than just kind of leave it all to be figured out. But we also recognize the importance of being able to, un, to, 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 to become part of a more scalable solution. Um, you know, we introduced proprietary metrics, um, that are both interaction rate and um, time in view on our own property, um, which is really leading us to also see why something like attention metrics will be so beneficial in predicting better outcomes for advertisers. Um, But again, that's proprietary to the New York Times. um, And if we are truly going to come to a solution that is adopted uh, beyond just our own platforms, it becomes something that's more of a standard that allows brands and agencies to look at apples to apples, we want to make sure that we are also, you know, contributing to what we believe will be, um, again, best for all all three parties involved. I'm curious too, like how attention metrics or these additional KPIs like come into play when you know advertisers are looking at off-platform campaigns, um, whether that's social media, uh, not collaborations, but like, you know, campaigns, things of that nature, or, um, you know, even getting into like things like experiential too. Like how widespread do you think this kind of change in KPI appetite, I don't even know what to call it, like just kind of like change in how like ROI is measures is like, expanded because, you know, with display and, you know, more programmatic budgets, those budgets are obviously facing a world of change with like cookie deprecation and, you know, the MFA kind of um, flare up that's been happening. But, you know, I think budgets are kind of on the whole being thought of a little bit differently by marketers, but curious what your kind of thoughts are on the, the wider scope of marketing and advertising. Well, I mean, I think a lot of the intention around attention metrics are to create something that can be um, applied beyond just a single platform. Um, and, you know, you asked about social and and one of the things I can share is that um, we actually partnered with Kantar just over a year ago or so um, to really look at uh, attention devoted to advertising within our advertising within our environment versus social in particular. And so we did neuro testing. We actually found that um, we saw attention uh, rate higher, 35% higher on average relative to what we saw on social media. 
And again, I think that what we saw that continuing to apply to the performance of uh, higher uh, metrics, whether that be engagement rates or even click-through rates um, within our, our ad environment. Interesting. Okay. Uh, maybe like explain that a little bit further to me. So the engagement rates in your on ad environments on your owned and operated are higher than on social platforms. Is that what the results kind of found? We saw the attention be higher by 35%. And I will say that separate from that study, we've partnered with Kantar on a few other just performance studies that demonstrate our ads having um, about one and a half times the engagement of the IAB standard. Got it. Okay, interesting. And so what does that kind of bleed into with like conversations with advertisers and helping them kind of figure out where their budgets should be allocated when, you know, partnering with the New York Times? Is it, you know, focusing on more on-site campaigns or, you know, kind of in-house or obviously publishers and uh, brands work together on, you know, third-party platforms all the time? But, you know, what is that kind of lead into when you're discussing attention and things like, you know, having a proactive audience um, respond to campaigns, you know, with advertisers that you're either in talks with or already working with? Sure. I mean, I think the first thing that is important to say is performance means a lot of different things to a lot of different advertisers. I think um, outcomes are ultimately what matter, but some of those are, um, you know, everything from uh, perception to intent all the way through to understanding um, the actual purchase. Uh, and so I think depending on what an advertiser is really after, um, we are able to make recommendations based on, you know, where they should be running or what types of formats may be most effective for them. Um, and obviously that's kind of a, a practice that we're really focusing on enhancing. And, you know, I think you'll also, you know, the idea of being able to participate in fuller funnel advertising versus what I think many publishers are sort of relegated to thinking about top of funnel, but we've really been able to see um, based on campaigns that we've run that we are able to translate down further from just top of funnel. Yeah. Um, and you'll hear more about that from us um, in 2024. Got it. Um, nice little teaser there. Uh, but the, <laughs> I guess, yeah, like the funnel kind of flattening, so to speak, like really starting with brand awareness, but like able to kind of prove out that transaction is again, something I've heard from other publishers, right? So it's, I guess like, what does that kind of look like? Cause I think for the longest time, like brand awareness was so different from, you know, transaction or conversion focused campaigns, right? Like the latter being more focused on, you know, buy this specific product or, you know, click this link and, you know, bet on a, you know, sport event for the first time or something along those lines, like very like attribution, um, or what is it called? Affiliate link kind of oriented in a way. What's the kind of like flattened funnel approach that does both? Cause I feel like it makes sense that it would be one or the other, but how does it, how does it work for marketers who are like, yeah, like if we're going to spend on a campaign, we want it to be high and bottom funnel. Mm. Well, I mean, I think that it, it, it can, I would say high top of funnel and bottom of funnel may be beyond what we're talking about here. I think that how do we really demonstrate that 
awareness then translates into intent, particularly if you're delivering that message to an audience with some level of frequency. Um, so I think how do we make the connection between awareness and then ultimately uh, intent or perception or uh, likelihood to buy is really where we're focused on, um, you know, really focusing a lot of our uh, our experiments and a lot of our work with our clients. Got it. And so Q4, I think, has historically been a very transaction-focused uh, quarter given, like, you know, the holiday season. There's, you know, the Amazon shopping events and all of the other retailer shopping events that happen this quarter. Uh, but, you know, looking at Q4, is it pretty, like, business as usual when it comes to, like, what advertisers are hoping for um, and, like, their, like, ad spend levels? Or have there been any noticeable changes in how this quarter is so far proceeding? I think we're seeing a lot of what we've talked about seeing up through this quarter. Um, you know, I think we see a number of our partners uh, really looking inside of the quarter at spending budgets, often focused on more quick turn opportunities and really measuring the effectiveness of those campaigns via short term mm -hmm. um, and what it does, you know, in that week, in that quarter. But equally, we're seeing advertisers really focus on some of the longer term, more custom content and sponsorship driven opportunities. So I would say it's fairly equally balanced um, and and not uh, atypical. Got it. Yeah, because I think at the beginning of Q3, I want to say, there was um, a story I did that was looking at the trends for how the quarter was pacing, how, you know, Outlook was looking for Q4, um, again, given it's such a, you know, monumental quarter for a lot of publishers. And one of the things that kept coming up was like, yeah, there's spend in Q4, but we're still working on it. The big thing that's coming up is like 2024 is obviously top of mind. Like everyone is asking about it. Agencies are already working with their clients to like plan out the next year's campaigns. Like it just seemed like there was this yearning to skip ahead almost to the next year. What are your thoughts on that? Because I'm curious about you know, Q4 is obviously quick turn, you know, or maybe there's that balance of like higher level too, but is there a lot of talk around 2024 already in, you know, a way that's maybe like atypical, as you kind of mm. said? Uh, we're definitely having conversations around 2024. And often when you're planning that often or that far in advance, um, those center around bigger, ambitious, often content or sponsorship led programs and partnerships. I would not call it atypical. I think this time of year, there's always kind of a great amount of excitement around what the next year could bring, um, while also realizing we have to finish the quarter that we are currently inside of. Um, I will say, you know, there's definitely with sort of, um, you know, the Olympics happening next year and planning for a lot of the cultural moments that will happen in 2024, um, I think a, a desire to get ahead of the planning cycle for that and really make sure that um, particularly given the wide range of sort of cultural moments that we'll be covering uh, within the New York Times and across all of our sub brands um, that, you know, there's, there's just a lot of discussion to make sure that we're coming at them in a really creative and unique way. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back. I'm Christina Coe, Senior Editor at Custom, Digiday Media's in-house agency. 
In this podcast, Interstitial Story, sponsored by StackAdapt, we speak with Kevin Liang, the company's Director of Solutions, about programmatic account-based marketing, the best practices and missteps B2B marketers need to know. Typically, in terms of best practices, we try to encourage our clients to be a little bit more broad uh, at the upper funnel and potentially be open to making changes to you know, who's going to be part of that upper funnel engagement strategy. In terms of retargeting, what we like to do is we'd like to drive engagement across a larger audience segment. We'd like to look at the engagement and measure that back to specific companies or decision makers. And then we want to build a personalized retargeting strategy to then further drive engagement. One example of a strategy is using retargeting in the middle of the funnel and adding some type of blend of personalization. Perhaps your retargeting ad will make mention of some of the services that the user engaged with online, right? So if the user looked at a product that was a CRM product, for example, perhaps the retargeting campaign can be personalized with an ad that says something to the effect of looking to solve CRM problems, find out how this product can can help you, right? So we find that adding some personalization to that retargeting funnel can be really, really effective. And then what we want to do in terms of that final lower funnel conversion is put a creative together that is explicitly driving some type of call to action. With B2B marketing, not only is the personalization aspect of ad targeting different, but the buying cycle is much longer than that of B2C or D2C marketing. With that in mind, teams need to ensure they're adjusting their performance measurements in addition to their expectations. One misstep that we commonly see is that oftentimes we are perhaps over-indexed on a final outcome, such as a form fill or a lower funnel, another type of lower funnel conversion, right? But when we think about B2B and B2B sales in general, we, we understand that the life cycle for B2B buying decisions is often very long. And at, at the longest end of this, this can be anywhere between 12 to 18 months, right? So if we're running a campaign, oftentimes you're not going to be able to see the immediate impact of advertising and impressions being shown to uh, buyers uh, with an actual outcome like a conversion. But what we want to encourage is to encourage our clients to start looking at other types of signals uh, and behaviors that might indicate that the campaign is being successful, right? So rather than just looking at how many form fills were uh, completed by the end of the campaign, one thing that we, we might want to do is look at how this campaign actually impacted readership patterns, right? So if you are selling a specific product and after a campaign is run, we notice that for the, for the users that we engage, there is an uptick in readership or interest or curiosity around those products. Then for a specific stage of the campaign, we might qualify that as very, being very successful. You've been listening to Kevin Liang, Director of Solutions at StackAdapt, our sponsor on this episode. And now back to the Digiday podcast. You mentioned also your kind of vertical strategy or adding more to the portfolio, right? And so I'm curious how that plays out on the ad side, because on the subscription side, it's been like well-reported and also very well duplicated or often duplicated. I won't necessarily say well, but there's been this kind of like 
eagerness to see how digital subscriptions have increased by adding, you know, additional verticals and bundling and, and things of that nature. On the advertising side, how has that kind of played into how you approach um, sales conversations, scaling up budgets, um, you know, things of that nature? Because, you know, it's the portfolio strategy is, you know, well practiced by a lot of publishers, but curious how it kind of plays out for the New York Times. Sure. I mean, I think one of the things that's so exciting is that we've focused very, very intently on building scaled audiences across our portfolio of brands. And you'd probably say really, really focused primarily at first on um, ensuring that we have a bundle subscription strategy. And Meredith reported in our Q2 earnings, you know, about almost one third of our um, subscriber base is now uh, on the bundle. And so what that means is that we have this incredible loyalty at scale in all of these different areas. And it means people are coming into the New York Times portfolio for lots of different reasons. Their motivations for coming in are really varied, whether they want to come in to read uh, stories about sports on The Athletic, or they want to come in for shopping advice on Wirecutter, or they want to come in to play games. And so that's really created a dynamic opportunity for audience insights and then ultimately the ways that we market on some of these sub-brands. And as I mentioned, in places that never had advertising before. I walked in the door at the New York Times and they told me, we're going to be launching advertising on Wordle Mobile. And my first thought was, oh my God, my friends and family are going to be so mad at me. Um, And then I realized we'd actually done extensive testing um, on our readers or users, game players, to make sure that the ad experience that we launched was not overly intrusive to the game player, but ultimately equally a good experience for the advertiser. And so, you know, when we launched that over the summer, it's had fantastic results for the advertisers that have leveraged it. And we've seen it not have any negative impact on um, game players. So, you know, really thinking about how we introduce unique opportunities with that same care for user experience and focus on what it will mean for brands and then how we actually create that opportunity across the New York Times portfolio, leveraging data and audience insights and then demonstrating how it ultimately creates stronger campaigns and results is is kind of a magical experience just because we aren't building advertising experiences and hoping that the uh, readers come, they're already there. And now it's really, you know, thinking about how we responsibly um, build experiences for them that that advertisers are going to want to utilize. Got it. And kind of going off of that too, like I am curious with the fact that, you know, the news vertical, the New York Times being a news publication, like there are obvious like brand safety concerns around news that, you know, have been ongoing for probably since news has been around, honestly, in various forms. But um, how has it been maybe approaching new clients or categories that maybe historically have been like, you know, we're not really super excited to be next to news, like we're just scared of it or, you know, what have you? Because, you know, with the subscription bundle, there are like proof cases of like, you know, maybe a sports season is up. So the athletic is what's keeping someone in, but then like the election cycle is going to come through next and like keep them in. Like there's this like rotating kind of calendar of things keeping a subscriber locked in. What does it do for like, 
you know, the advertisers who, yeah, again, weren't really like big on news or are a little bit hesitant around it or only come in through like election season? Like what's the cadence of what this is doing to clients? I mean, first of all, I appreciate all of the attention that you give to news avoidance. Um, I know you had it on your podcast a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, it's it's something that has been a pain point um, of the industry for, for years, as you point out. Um, and, you know, news environments tend to draw in really premium readers and then ultimately have a lot of engagement. And I know we, this is all really well reported. Um, but the fact of the matter is, there are a number of brands and even categories that tend to be a lot more adverse to news. Um, and what the bundle and what, you know, the, the many sub brands that we now have under the New York Times portfolio mean is that advertisers who are less likely to want to appear in news actually have opportunities that are in cooking, that are in games, that are in sports, that are even across wellness and culture and fashion um, to really not necessarily be around what they may consider hard news. Um, so it's definitely meant that there are a number of ad categories and advertisers who we will work with now who perhaps would not have been open to working with just solely the news product. And so what does that do to your kind of like outreach strategy or your um, pitching strategy even? Do you have like a bigger emphasis on um, outrage versus like RFP response or like what's the kind of changes to pitching the, the times or, you know? Sure. Well, I mean, I'd like to think that everything that we do is rooted in advertiser needs. Um, you know, I think it's really understanding target audiences cross-referenced with obviously experiences that a lot of advertisers are looking to um, surround and helping them understand through this really robust library of insights we now have because we're reaching, you know, up to 100 million people per week, um, you know, really helping them understand what their target audiences care about, how they behave, what they're reading, and then ultimately what type of ad experiences are going to be right for them. Um, so, you know, it, it does change things with regard to having just specifically a cooking conversation or having a games only conversation. Whereas in the past, obviously that would have been much harder to do um, before we really achieved the scale that we now have um, really laser focused in some of those sub brands. Got it. Got it. I wanted to mention too, because it's something that I think was reported a couple days ago now um, by Insider, but it's something that I had chatted with Seb Tomic about before about bringing advertising to the athletic, right? And his kind of approach to that, there was this kind of balance between wanting to focus on direct sold, um, but programmatic was kind of in the background as an opportunity if it fits. Historically, I think open programmatic wasn't included on the New York Times app, right? Like that had been removed. Insider reported a couple of days ago that it was quietly brought back in. Curious if there's been a strategy change around programmatic and what the kind of, you know, thought process is behind that piece of the, um, you know, advertising equation. Well, I mean, programmatic supports the advertising business. Obviously, you know, the direct uh, advertising has long been a focus, but, um, you know, programmatic is also, um, you know, a revenue stream that, that supports the business. And with respect to open programmatic within the app, 
we, just like I talked about um, a lot of the testing that we did uh, when we were bringing ads into Wordle, the technology around the open programmatic market and our ability to ensure quality ads and experiences come through within the app have become far more sophisticated since we had turned it off. And it was always in service of creating quality premium experiences for our readers. Um, And once we had real confidence that that was something that we really had a lot more control over, it led us to bringing that that stream back into into the app. Does like open programmatic or programmatic kind of at large, is that like a area of focus, especially for the coming year and even Q4? Because you mentioned like quick turn is still like a, a top of mind category or, you know, campaign focus amongst advertisers, right? So curious, like the prioritization or opportunity that you see around, um, you know, open programmatic specifically going forward. I think programmatic in general, I wouldn't specifically point to open or not. I think programmatic in general is a method that the marketplace has demonstrated as a desirable entry point into our inventory. I think what's important to us is ensuring that we maintain a level of quality within that advertising space um, and, you know, a level of pragmatism, recognizing that this automatic trading is an avenue that many advertisers um, really want to pursue. Um, So ensuring that there is an opportunity, and again, ensuring that we approach that opportunity responsibly um, is is our priority. Harking back to what we were talking about around attention metrics and then finding partners, like you mentioned Kantar, to, to help kind of measure some of these things. Like, it seems like there's a decent amount of change that needs to happen internally to be able to factor in attention metrics at, you know, the level of importance that advertisers are thinking about them, measuring audience uh, responsiveness and things of that nature too. Like who are some of the partners or like what are some of the changes that you're making to kind of address these things like in a manageable way as a fully operational like sales team that's already probably got a lot on your plate? Yeah. I mean, I think that that's a great question. How operationally do we make sure that we're responsibly approaching change? And I think the answer to that is, first of all, we need to make sure that we are working collaboratively across teams. I can't say that enough. I think that we as an industry often recognize something needs to change and start to enact change without bringing the teams that are a part of that change along. And so really looking across our organization and within New York Times advertising to ensure that we have all the right stakeholders involved, um, those who really are working with the data, working with our brand partners and our agency partners when it comes to performance and really making sure everybody is involved in evaluating solutions going forward. Um, you know, we have had the benefit of long having that type of collaboration exist within our department, particularly given the importance of first party data and targeting um, and how we've utilized that for advertising. So there's already a, a sort of well-established um, sort of cross-functional group uh, who are looking at these things. Um, but I think uh, ensuring that 
we establish what success looks like, how we really look at best practices, and then, you know, how we then go to market to evaluate different partners and technologies who are offering attention metric solutions. Um, and again, just like I talked about in the beginning of, of, of the session, you know, making sure that this is also something that is going to uh, be adopted in a scaled way to ensure that there is um, uh, something more universal that we participate in. Right. Yeah. And I think it's, again, something I've, I've spoken with other publishers about and including like Condé Nast, for instance, but it's this like concept of like in the post cookie world, you know, the worry of like walled gardens and like reducing scalable opportunities is, you know, all top of mind. So finding like a universal solution to address that, you know, whether that's like alternative identifiers or, you know, sandboxes, whatever it is, but like yeah, I, I can understand the, you know, when it comes to attention metrics and like trying to find a, you know, widely shared or universal um, happy solution to to what KPIs are required. Like it is something that needs to kind of happen outside of the, you know, realm of one publisher or one like one-to-one conversation with an advertiser. And so like those partners definitely like see how they could be an important player in this kind of transition or like just, you know, operational shift amongst, you know, everyone involved. That's right. And I think making sure that, um, you know, the teams who are most impacted by any of these changes or the practices that we need to reevaluate to really ensure that we're then delivering the best customer experience as this kind of evaluation goes goes forward um, is really important. And, and again, I think something that we can't um, sort of ignore as we, as we move toward, uh, any, any change versus what we're doing right now. But again, I think we happen to have a bit of an advantage in that arena, just because we've done both a lot of our own proprietary metrics, like I mentioned, as well as, you know, long been organized around data and performance. We kind of touched on this a little bit about like, you know, Q4, the interest in 2024 holistically. I am curious, you know, when you're looking at, inbounds versus outbound, um, you know, client chats and and things of that nature. I've heard that like, and granted, I think the times would probably be in a slightly different position than some of the other publishers I've I've spoken with about this, but like the responsiveness from outbound um, pitches, I guess, I don't even know what they'd be called, but like the responsiveness to outbounds, getting like, you know, conversations with, you know, new clients locked in has been a lot easier than maybe the past few quarters. Um, curious, like if that's something that you've seen or if you just have been taking a higher volume of conversations with clients right now, like what does the appetite look like for, you know, you know reaching out to to new clients in particular, either this quarter or looking ahead to next year? I mean, I think that what will always be true is the importance of acting like a partner instead of a vendor. And I think the importance of having conversations rooted in value exchange rather than transaction. And I think if anything, the last few years have taught a lot of organizations that the end goal can't just be to pitch a thing and close a deal establishing real trust and partnership with your brand and agency partners um, is so important. I think in eliciting a meaningful dialogue or response, and my hope is that if 
publishers and partners are feeling that those conversations are going better, but it's actually indicative of us as an industry getting better at working together and actually recognizing that value exchange for what it is instead of, you know, uh, better subject lines or more potential budgets um, in, in, in coming. Got it. So approaching it more like a value exchange versus, you know, transaction, is it about changing the go-to-market strategy? Is it about changing, like, you know, telling a salesperson to, like, you know, tap the person that you met at Can because you had a good conversation? Like, what's the, I guess, like, logistics of actually getting that? Because I feel like, you know, marketer getting an inbound, like, you know, request is probably they're automatically in that, like, oh, it's a sales pitch kind of thing. Like, what's the, I don't know, tip or key that, like, trick that you have for making it come across as more, like... <laughs> Friendly. <laughs> Making it come across like you care. Well, the first thing is you actually have to care. Um, you know, like I think, I think demonstrating that you have done your homework on the sales side and actually come with intelligence around what this advertiser or what this agency cares about. Um, and that it isn't something that is like a templated generic reach out. I mean, I think that's the first barrier to clear. Um, and I think one that again, has improved since, you know, maybe three years ago as, as the sales cycles have become a lot more complex and as the environments that our clients have been facing have been more uncertain. Um, so I think, you know, being able to solve problems come with solutions rather than pitch things, um, is something that, you know, will inevitably create a more meaningful, it may not every single time, you won't get a hundred percent response rate, but at least relationships will be built off of something that is beyond commerce. Um, I like to say, and I think a, a client or somebody on the receiving end of a sales pitch really feels it when, you know, somebody has actually done their due diligence to understand what it is that might be relevant to them versus a blind kind of cold call that is all about volume and just selling stuff. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting way to think about it. Like what are like maybe two or three things that stand out as like a possible solution for this person versus, you know, hey, we have ad spots, come fill them. Yeah. I mean, really tailoring to what I think you might care about and, you know, how can I teach you something or how can I make you smarter? Um, you know, if there's, if there's that again, value add versus aim of just transaction, um, I think that really changes the conversation and, and does send it into a place of more depth rather than you know, something that you could really just ignore easily. Yeah, absolutely. And so I guess like looking at the split between like inbound um, RFPs and like outbound kind of requests, like what is the kind of maybe priority or like just general split there? And is that any different than maybe like, you know, a couple months ago, a year ago, um, what have you? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, where I would say that you know, we continue to maintain really strong relationships, partnerships, um, whatever word you'd want to use is you know, the New York Times is, has been around for a long time. We've got a lot of established relationships across the marketplace. And you know, I think our, our have developed a real reputation for being more solutions oriented. What is exciting is 
with the introduction of some of the sub brands, we are having conversations with advertisers that, you know, really we have never had before. So you're really starting to approach that as a completely new relationship. Um, and, you know, I think that when it comes to, you know, whether it's uh, outbound, inbound, I mean, I think what it comes down to is how are we addressing brands and agencies uh, across things that we either know that we believe will be beneficial to them, understanding their consumer base or behaviors, um, or ensuring that we are responding in really thoughtful uh, and impactful ways to things that they put out um, that we that we react to. And so maybe the last question for you, again, not to like harp too much on 2024, considering we're, you know, still a couple months out, but I am curious, like, what is top of mind for you, whether it's like, you know, I think the athletic we had talked about, um, you know, really focusing on like key tentpole events, like uh, the Olympics and things like that. But like when you're looking at the holistic portfolio for the New York Times company, like what are some of the like things you're excited about or like key selling moments that you kind of have your eye on um, and you know, the timelines for that too. Like, is it easier to sell a little bit further out than maybe it was again, like a year ago? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think that my focus and excitement around 2024 is taking another step further into really having brands and agencies understand the full wingspan of the brands that we represent. Um, and the maturity of many of those brands when it comes to being kind of advertising partnership ready. Um, and when it comes to some of the tent poles, I mean, I think there are things that are moments in time. Um, you know, right now we're planning for Thanksgiving. Um, that happens, you know, to be in just a few weeks. But if you think about all of the ways that the New York Times is going to approach Thanksgiving, whether that be through cooking, whether that be through sports, whether that be through gameplay and collaboration and connections, um, or just sort of uh, the cultural moment and um, that is Thanksgiving, you also can apply that to everything from the Oscars to the Super Bowl to the 2024 Olympics, even, you know, out to the election. And then there are just more pervasive moments that transcend, which is, you know, uh, family planning and summer getaways, um, you know, each brand really has a new or unique way of, um, of, of approaching some of those sort of pillars. And I think it's really exciting and fun, frankly, to, to really design how a brand can show up uh, across all of those, um, those different sub-brands um, in service of that specific kind of uh, cultural moment. Awesome. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. I feel like that flew by, but thank you so much for joining me and um, walking me through kind of like what you're seeing now, what some of the macro trends are for next year and how you're really approaching these kind of changing, you know, again, like KPIs and like proof of, you know, campaign success with advertisers. I think it's going to be something really fascinating to follow, especially in the coming cookie apocalypse and all that next year. So <laughs> uh, definitely something to talk about again. Thank you so much, Joy. Yeah, thank you, Kaylee. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Digiday podcast. Thank you to everyone for listening. And please don't forget to share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. You can even rate us and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts if you like. We'll be back next week with another episode.